Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, We missed you last week. We took a week off from our midweek podcast because we were hosting Vacation Bible School and there was not a square inch of usable space to record the podcast, and so we're excited to be back with you. I'm joined today by our worship and tech director and podcast producer, Bill Mayer. Hello. Welcome back, guys. And I also have some special guests that I'll be introducing you to shortly. Today's podcast is not a part of our Binge the Bible series, and so we won't be covering passages from our daily reading or from this past Sunday's service. I mentioned this two weeks ago, but we are going to be talking about the topic of eschatology. For those of you who don't know fancy theological words, uh, the Greek word for last things is the eschaton, and eschatology is the study of last things. So we're going to be talking about the end of the world, the apocalypse, uh, the return of Christ, the millennial reign, the rapture, all the, all the topics surrounding eschatology, and I'm excited to have invited some friends to join us in this conversation. Uh, John and Joy Wilson are with us today. Can you guys say hello to everybody? Hello there. Good morning. We're happy to have you guys on the podcast. You, we've had several conversations in and around this topic over the, I don't know, last several years and some great email interactions that you guys have sent in. We haven't, haven't really addressed all the email questions thoroughly in anticipation of having a podcast format like this one. Um, and another couple good friends of ours who are on the podcast today, John and Judy Fudge. Can you guys say hey, everybody? So glad you're here. Um, you'll hear them pipe up when they have questions, and um, if they don't, it's because they're getting all their questions answered. So no pressure, but we're glad you guys are here. Um, I want to begin kind of by setting a framework for our conversation. Um, one of the difficulties as it relates to the topic of eschatology is there has been so much ink spilled on the topic, and there is such a diversity of belief. And so depending on the um, denomination you grew up under or your favorite Bible teacher, who you got your eschatology from, um, there's a lot of uh, disagreement about the way things play out, how we interact with the scriptures, what are the pertinent scriptures, what do those things mean, what are the frameworks by which we come to the scriptures. So I wanted to just begin by providing a little bit of an oversight and what I hope is a fair kind of recap or estimation of each of the main uh, eschatological positions. Before we do that, though, I wanted to read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, which says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I chose this passage to start with because eschatology really breaks down into two types, personal eschatology and universal eschatology. We typically begin to immediately think about universal eschatology. What does this mean for the whole world, the imminent return of Christ, final judgment, the new age, the new heavens, the new earth? We think about the book of Revelation, but of more pressing matter is really personal eschatology. We, we are all uh, given life. We are all in a various stage of however long our days are, which we don't know. And all of us are going to face the Lord in judgment. And so 
I wanted to just begin by acknowledging the importance of eschatology for all people, not just in the matter of what's going to happen in the distant future, but the fact that each of us are living lives with an expectation and a hope that really holds us firm as we approach the imminence of death. All of us wonder if Christ will return before our physical death, which he could at, for, at any moment. The clear teaching of scripture is that the return of Christ is imminent and it could happen at any moment and no one knows when that is. But for all the generations who have passed since the ascension of Jesus to present, they have faced a personal eschatology upon their own death. And so I'm going to come back to this at the end to talk about the critical nature of eschatology and why it's important that we think about it, because it really does determine our personal expectation and our hopes for the future. And so maybe you're listening to this episode and you're not really interested in eschatology or maybe you've taken like some have the uh, the pan millennial view, which is it'll all pan out. And so why bother putting any uh, effort into understanding the various perceptions and, and um, beliefs? Um, but eschatology matters for every single person because it is appointed for every person once to die and then to face judgment. And so whether you face judgment at the return of Christ or you face judgment upon your own death, we want to stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ with the expectation of being received as a faithful servant and to receive the commendation and enter into God's glory. And that's what we want for every single human. That's what every single one of us should be living in anticipation of, regardless of when Christ returns and what that looks like. So personal eschatology, universal eschatology. This verse also puts these two pieces together. It talks about the universal nature of Christ. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So we're going back into history, into the life and the crucifixion and ascension of Jesus. So now we're expecting him to return in the same manner in which he ascended. He is going to return visibly, bodily, and gloriously. Uh, and that return is imminent. But he's not going to deal with sin. He's already taken care of sin. He's coming back f- to bring those who are eagerly waiting for him. We get back to that hope piece again. And so it's that event that all eschatology is built upon. So it's every one of the titles that I'm going to introduce on the podcast and the ones you guys already know, they're built around the imminent return of Christ. Now, they have some unusual names, and so I wanted to help everybody kind of understand the relevant passages and the kind of big categories of eschatology. Um, The four big eschatological belief systems center around the timing of the return of Christ, and that really is the human fascination, isn't it? All of us want to know when this will happen and how will we know it's happening, and we are not alone in that. Repeatedly throughout the scriptures, this is the question that Jesus faced. When Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, which is also mirrored in Mark 13 and Luke 21, he had made a prophecy about the temple being destroyed and not one brick remaining on another. And then the disciples in turn asked him, when will this occur and what will be the sign of your coming? And this is the, this is the question that gave way to the Olivet Discourse, which gives us a lot of insight into the quote-unquote end of the world, which we're going to look at together. This is also the question that was asked before the ascension, when Jesus gathered his disciples together at the same location, and he said, they asked the question, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And so the eschatological question is always a matter of timing. The, The clear teaching of Jesus and the whole New Testament is that we do not know the timing. Like, we are purposefully in the dark, and so nothing that I say today is going to help give you an insight into when this will happen. Although Jesus does provide for us signs and warnings, the question then becomes, 
who were those signs and warnings for and how we ought to read them now. So that's going to be the nature of our conversation. So we are approaching eschatology, asking the same question the original disciples asked, and that is when. And all of the categories of eschatology are built upon when will Jesus return. They take their name from the Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6, thousand year reign of Christ. And so they are millennial positions. And so there's four millennial positions. But the millennial positions are built in reference to in reference to the millennium, when will Jesus return? Before the millennium, during the millennium, after the millennium. And so you end up with these four millennial positions. And they are amillennial, which means no millennium or realized millennialism. And that's actually like the term Christian was initially pejorative. It was a it was a bad name, little Christ's, because you die like little Christ's. Amillennialism was given as a pejorative term to people who did not take that particular passage of scripture literally, but believed that it represented the age of the church, the missional age, when Jesus was reigning from heaven and we were the kingdom on earth. And so they believed in a realized millennium. And because that seemed odd to those who read it literally, um, namely the historic premillennialists, they started calling them amillennialists, which means no millennium. Does that make sense? So the amillennialists are the first group. The second would be the post-millennialists. And these are ones who believe that Jesus will return after he has reigned on the earth for a thousand years. And again, their perception of what that reign looks like is different from both the amillennialists and the historic premillennialists. The third group are the historic premillennialists. These are people who read Revelation 20 as being in reference to a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth, and that that is going to play out at some point in human history, and Jesus is going to return to the earth, set up a kingdom in Jerusalem, and reign from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And so a lot of the Old Testament passages from Isaiah and Daniel and different places, they would fit into a physical reign of Jesus on the earth 4,000 years, and then final judgment would happen at the end of that 1,000 years. So that's historic premillennialism. And then the fourth position is called dispensational premillennialism. And this is the, this is the left-behind theology, the rapture theology. And this is what most 21st century Americans were raised in. This is the, this is the theology of kind of pop culture, and um, this is what most people ask me the questions about. They have a presumption of dispensational premillennialism. Dispensationalism um, is about 150 years old. It came out of the teaching of C.I. Schofield. The Schofield Study Bible was one of the first study Bibles available, and so it that was a tool that spread broadly. It came out of the Second Great Awakening, just like post-millennial, post-millennialism does, did, and it really traces the interactions of God with his people in seven distinct dispensations. And so they would look and see, okay, here's this first dispensation where God was relating to humankind this way, and then there's the second dispensation, and you go all the way through them. And they would see the church age as one of those dispensations. And so their, uh, their eschatology is a way to resolve all of the things that God has done and said through those dispensations in a final consummation of all things. And so this, this one's very complex. And this is if you're if you're if you're studying eschatology and somebody pulls out a timeline and charts and graphs and pictures and it's very hard for you to keep up with, it's probably dispensational premillennialism. And so, a part of the reason that that's this is the one of the four that has a physical rapture is because 
Dispensational premillennialism sees different dispensations of God's grace upon Israel and the church. And so they're very, very distinct. There is no overlap or fulfillment. And so how is God going to fulfill his promises to geo-ethnic Israel and also have this thing he's doing with the church? And so all of those different interactions and promises get, get pulled apart into two separate categories. And then how do we have a scenario in which God is faithful to the things he said to the church and he's faithful to the things he said to Israel? How do those things work out? And so this is where the idea of the rapture first came from. If you go back and read uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 and following, and really through the beginning of chapter, chapter 5, and we get that phrase, caught up in the air, that's the actual word that rapture develops from. But if you read that passage devoid or disconnected from the rapture as we've had it explained to us, it doesn't actually explain to us the rapture as it's been explained. It kind of gets tacked on afterward, and then we front load that meaning into this phrase, caught up with him in the air. But the reason for the rapture is that we need, in order for all of these things to resolve properly, um, we have to get all the Christians out of the way. And you have to have only geo-ethnic Israel on the planet to fulfill the purposes and all the promises that God made for them. And so the rapture is a way of removing the, the faithful Christians and then allowing God to fulfill his dispensation to Israel before culminating all things back together and putting everything back together again. And so this is where the kind of niche for rapture came from in the first place. And it's the only one of the four that has a rapture in it. So when I say things on Sunday morning about how there is no rapture, I don't mean that there's no meaning to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. What I do mean is that this is a construct that is trying to fulfill these dispensations that is one of several ways that people read and interpret the scriptures. And so we'll get into that a little bit more. I want to I talk a little bit about why this matters so much. And before I do this, does anybody have any questions so far about these four millennial positions? Nope? Everybody tracking? Okay. Yeah, John. Yep. Yep. One of the other three, do we, do we know them? Can we see them? Are they church? Or? That's a great question. Uh, so a lot of times in the Western evangelical church, the presumption is dispensational premillennialism. And dispensational premillennialists tend to kind of just throw the other three out as though they're nonsensical, and they don't even reference them. And so if you are in a church that teaches dispensational premillennialism, that they just teach it like that's it is what it is, and that's all there is. And so you wouldn't know anything else. You wouldn't even know there were other positions from that, from that background. Um, millennialists and postmillennialists, they fall into a second category that's called preterism. So the, his, the premillennialists fall into this topic called futurism, and I'll explain those briefly. This is a really good question, and I'll get to specifically answering it. Futurists are going to look at the prophecies of the New Testament, namely the Olivet Discourse, Revelation chapter 4 to and following, um, and some of the passages like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And they would say that these are prophecies that still are in the future for the current church. They are called futurists. The, the Greek word for past is preter, and it means the past. And so preterists are those who would say, these were for the future of the original hearers, but they were already fulfilled. And we are reading them now as past descriptions of things that already came to past. And so post-millennialists and amillennialists have a preterist 
eschatology. And historic premillennialists and dispensational premillennialists have a futuristic eschatology. And so if you're listening to someone teach and they're teaching from any of these passages or referencing eschatology and everything they're referencing is about in the future, you know that you're listening to a premillennialist. If they're talking about these events having been fulfilled in the past, you're either listening to a postmillennialist or an amillennialist. Now, there is no clear distinction in denominations or in church groups where only these people believe this and only these people believe this. It is a mixed bag. So you will find... Um, a lot of like reformed Protestant Calvinists who are either post-millennial or pre historic premillennial, but not dispensational premillennialists. And you'll find a lot of like the Calvary Chapel churches. They're all dispensational premillennialists. And you're going to go to these different groups and they have their eschatology. And then you get weird outliers. For instance, John MacArthur is a, is a staunch Calvinist and also an, a dispensational premillennialist, which that really doesn't go together from any other hermeneutic. It's not a consistent hermeneutic at all, but those are two things he holds in tension. And so it's really hard to tell unless the person teaching is telling you what their eschatology is, um, or they're presenting it like I'm ex presenting it on this podcast to kind of give you an overview of all of the different positions. So it's very difficult to tell. Once you're very familiar with all of them, you'll really get an idea about what the, the pieces and parts are. And then as you're listening to them teach, no matter what part of the Bible they're teaching from, very quickly you'll go, oh, I'm listening to a premillennialist, or I'm listening to a postmillennialist because of the way that they're using and interpreting the scriptures. But until you get your hands around about 13 major chunks of scripture and understand how they're viewed from four different angles, it's very hard to tell. So that's a great question, and it's a very insightful question. So that's the four views of the millennial views. Um, let's talk a little bit about First um, Thessalonians 4, so the rapture. So First Thessalonians and Second Thessalonians both have references to the end of the age. And part of this was because there had been some confusion about teaching to the, the, this particular group of churches about the end times, when they were coming, how we would know, what about those people who have already died. Part of the reason for that in 1 Thessalonians is that the expectation was that the, the generation that was on the planet was going to see the physical return of Christ before they died. So the imminent return of Christ has been the clear teaching of the Christian church since Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1. And so they're trying to grapple with hey, we've got people in our church who are passing away and Jesus hasn't come back. What happens to them? And that's a really important question, isn't it? And so 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is writing to answer that question. In 2 Thessalonians, he's, ans he's answering the question, um, has the resurrection already occurred? Because a group of kind of heretical teachers had come in, presumably with a letter they claimed to have been from Paul, and said, hey, we got this new teaching from Paul and we're here to tell you, you missed the resurrection and the final judgment, it's over, it passed you by. And so he's writing to calm them down and say, actually, that didn't happen. These things have to happen first. And so that's where kind of first and second Thessalonians fit into uh, the eschatological conversation. Now, th those are very important passages, and they, they build, they're like building blocks, but this is also like a bit of a Rubik's Cube. So if first, Thess first and second Thessalonians were written at a particular time, they could mean one thing. And if they were written at another time, they could have meant another thing. And this brings us to the definitive, non-biblically um, recorded event of history. And that is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is like the event that 
will impact your perception of what the scripture says about eschatology, but it's not in the Bible because the letters of the Bible were all written before AD 70. And so the whole New Testament, if it was put together before AD 70, and there's obviously critical debate about whether some of the letters are written after, I do believe um, that John's gospel was written after AD 70. I do believe that there were some late uh, letters uh, of Paul, but it's hard to say. Paul was likely killed before then, so but they were circulating. So you have to then go, okay, when was this written? And the reason it matters is that what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse was the destruction of the temple. He began in Matthew chapter 24 by everyone looking at the buildings and saying, this is all going to be destroyed. It's going to be so destroyed that not one stone will be laying on another. And, in, and that was in the 30s AD. So we're talking 40 years later, which is a generation. Jesus said, even some of those who are standing here will not die until these things have come to pass. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, and it actually happened, if you read some of the um, early historians, not just Josephus, Flavius, there's other historians uh, this is this is a well-documented Roman event because this is a Roman conquest. So this was the second of the Jewish-Roman wars. So the first was around the Maccabees and where we get the, the um, celebration of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights, and there was a, a, a Jewish-Roman war um, preceding the birth of Christ, and then there was a second after his ascension that resulted in the destruction of the temple. Now, when you take that event and you understand it historically, you will find that... Pretty much everything Jesus says in Matthew 24 that's mirrored in Mark 13 and in Luke 21 is fulfilled by A.D. 70. Jesus said, flee the city. Jesus said, go to the mountains. Jesus prayed it wouldn't be on a Sabbath or in the, win or in the winter. He was thinking about the people who were in the city. And historians will tell you there were zero Christians in the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when it was sacked. None. They had all left. And so this event happens, and you get these phrases like the abomination of desolation. So what, what is that abomination of desolation? Now, if you're reading this as a futurist, you're looking to the, to the future to say, what is this and when will happen? If you're reading it as a preterist, you're looking to go, okay, what, what is this in reference to? So Jesus is quoting Daniel 9, and Daniel 9 is talking about the little horn. He's talking about a leader who's going to come desecrate the temple. Well, in 170 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes attacked Jerusalem in the first Roman Jewish wars and he slaughtered a pig in the temple and set up an image of himself and called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means image of God. And so he set up for himself an abomination of desolation in the temple. He desecrated the temple and Jesus is saying that's going to happen again. And that's exactly what happened in AD 70. Titus, Flavius, Vespanius came in as a general of the Roman uh, Caesar and sieged the city for three and a half years. And in the middle of a seven-year siege at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he attacked and destroyed the entire city. And it was, it was terrible. And you can read about it various—you Google it, you can read about it very easily. All the stuff's available in public domain. Um, but the, what actually happened is completely, like, perfectly um, prescribed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. And so it makes a lot of sense to read it as a preterist. For me, it makes the most sense to read it as a preterist. Now, there are a group of preterists that are called full preterists, and they believe that that was, in fact, the return of Christ, and that there is no other return of Christ. 
And, and this, of course, is a heresy because there's so much in the Bible about the imminent return of Christ to judge the living and the dead and the final resurrection and eternal death and eternal life and the new heavens and a new earth, all this stuff. And they, they discount all of that and say it's all figurative. And when, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, that was the return of Christ. And now we're all living this life in perpetual, however long the, the earth lasts. And when we go to heaven, that's where the kingdom of God has culminated. And that's just garbage heresy. So there's very, 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 very few people who actually believe that to be true. But you will find some of that stuff out there because the internet has everything. John. Where does the rebuilding of the temple come in? So this is the question. And this, again, is where is the rebuilding of the temple? And when you go looking in the scriptures for the rebuilding of the temple, you will not find it. And the reason you will not find it is because, again, back into our dispensational premillennialism, in order for the Old Testament texts and promises to Israel to be fulfilled, there has to be a temple and a sacrificial system in Jerusalem. Because if we're looking at a futurist angle, there's a temple that's, that there's an abomination of desolation. And so how does that happen unless the temple is rebuilt? So it's by deduction that you'll be taught that there has to be another temple built but it doesn't say that anywhere in the actual Bible. The, the issue for, for the dispensational premillennialists is that the abomination of desolation is not what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 170 BC, nor is it what Titus Flavius Vespanius did in AD 70. The abomination of desolation is the Daniel 9 agreement between the man of lawlessness and the people of Israel. And so they're expecting a rebuilt temple an antichrist figure, an unfaithful apostate Israel, geo-ethnic Israel that makes an agreement of seven years for peace, but it's a false peace. And at the midpoint, the abomination occurs when the antichrist attacks and destroys Israel. But it's because they're trying to fit what could easily be read as a preterist view of AD 70 into a futurist view. And therefore, you need things like a new temple, another sacrificial system, a geo-ethnic Israel. Now, a lot of this stuff didn't, wasn't, in, wasn't in the world to be found or believed until um, the, 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 the group I mentioned earlier, C.I. Schofield and others, began to postulate this. And it didn't actually get born around Israel. It got born around fundamentalism. So during the early 1800s, uh, a lot of, uh, there was a big push away from uh, the belief and the uh, kind of reverence of scripture. And a lot of critical thought in the universities began to kind of attack the scriptures as basically myth and propaganda. And there was a group of fundamentalists, this is where fundamentalist Baptists came from, who basically said, like, we've got to protect the word of God. We've got to stand up for the truth. And in order to do that, we, ha the, we cannot allow them to allegorize the Bible into, into mythology, a meaningless dribble. And so they began to practice the literal... Uh, rendering or the literal hermeneutic of the Bible. And when they did that, this is when they got to the place of needing to have a geo-ethnic fulfillment of every time God said Israel, he meant Israel. And so this is the, they were holding on to these promises to the nation of Israel with no nuance or understanding of how they might have been fulfilled in history in an extra biblical sense or in Christ and therefore fulfilled in the church. And so in the, the foundation for dispensationalism is actually not Israel, it's actually fundamentalism and literal interpretation of the Bible. And so they have phrases like literal, except when it leads to absurdity. And so a dispensationalist is going to read Revelation and going to interpret everything as literal. This is why there's a literal thousand year reign of Christ and there's a literal dragon. 
And then you're going to get to some places where it can't be literal, and they'll say, well, it's absurd for it to be literal, so it must be um, analogous or metaphorical. But that is a, a somewhat arbitrary metric that's based on an opposition to a faithfulness to the Scripture. And so if you don't have that chip on your shoulder, then you come to the Scripture and you ask, okay, what genre am I reading here? And is it using allegorical terminology? And is it using word pictures? And what is it trying to communicate to me? And if I'm not bent on making it literal whenever possible, then it's going to speak to me in a very different way than when I'm trying to defend it and preserve it from attack and try to force it to say a thing that's that's word for word and literal. So I, I tell people all the time, you want to read your Bible, not literally, but literarily, because it's literature. And so you're, you're going to have multiple genres of literature. And so you're going to read the front page of the Wall Street Journal different than a birthday card, different from the funnies different from poetry, different from Shakespeare, because you understand each of these are using words, but they're communicating ideas and they're using pictures. Is this fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is this history? Is it non-history? Is this poetry? Am I reading a comic book? Like what, what is being communicated to me? There's a meaning that's being communicated. And so you have to enter that genre in order to receive that meaning. And if you try to flatten all those into the same thing, you're going to come to some very unusual uh, conclusions, which is why you need uber amounts of charts and graphs and pictures and that things don't make sense and that you jump around from here to here to here to here to here to make things connect together in ways that they actually don't naturally connect together uh, at all. Does that make sense? So in my understanding of the scripture, there is no, there will never be another temple built. In fact, the judgment of, of Jesus, remember Jesus said that the city of Jerusalem was going to receive the punishment for the blood of all the prophets. Think about that for a second. God's saying, like, I've been with, withholding wrath. Woe to the city who, who kills the prophets, who sheds their blood. And Jesus is saying there is, going to become, there is going to come a form of judgment upon this particular city that's like nothing else. Utter destruction. Never again to have the imminence that it had before. And in fact, it's going to be replaced at some point with a new Jerusalem when God brings that new Jerusalem, not up from the ground, but down from heaven. And so it's the return of Christ that we're going to see those things put back together. But I have zero expectation of there being any political alliances, any, any um, seven-year arrangement, any physical antichrist making a deal with Israel. All of those things are the, the deductions of seeking to have a literal interpretation of the Old Testament, specifically surrounding Israel, and then trying to put the things Jesus said about the end of all things into the futuristic rendering. And so it's not in the Bible. You won't find it. Same thing with the rapture. You get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, hey, people are dying, but they're dying in Christ. So you don't need to be grieving that they're not, they're not lost forever. And whoever's alive, whoever's alive is not going to be preceding those who have already died because Jesus is going to come back. The trumpet's going to blast. The dead in Christ are going to be raised and we're all going to go meet him together, but we're going to be in the right order. So he's saying, don't worry about the people who have died. He's trying to comfort them. And he uses the phrase, we'll be caught up with him. And that phrase is used five other times in the, in the Bible. Um, three times it's used to talk about prophets who were taken into the presence of God to see things. But in every instance, and two other times, it's about um, being pulled into a celebration of a returning king. And so you see that fits. But in every instance, those who are caught up come back down with a new revelation. There's no, there's no essence of being caught up and taken away. And so that is kind of front-loaded into the phrase, and this is where we get the concept of rapture. 
That's kind of further solidified by Jesus in Matthew 24, talking about one will be taken and one left behind. But if you look at that, the way that it's used, the one taken is not taken away to safety. The one taken is taken in seizure as a prisoner of war. And the one left behind is left miserably alone. And so it's not a good thing to be taken away. It's actually the exact opposite. It's, it's a judgment to be taken away. This is why Jesus is saying, run, everybody get out of the city. Yeah, yeah, because you don't want to be taken. And so it's a picture of military siege, not one of rapture, sudden rapture. Yes, Bill. So how would you reconcile that when if all the other references of rapture are being caught up to see God and now we're having this other spin where it's a bad thing, like to be plundered? So I'm only talking about the difference between Matthew 24 is being taken. Taken is not being raptured. So the, the dispensational premillennialists would put 1 Thessalonians 4.17 together with Matthew 24 and the reference of being taken. So I'm saying in, Matthew, in 1 Thessalonians 4, the caught up with him is that rapture. You're coming into the activity of God, into the presence of God, but in his return to the earth, not into, not into some um, kind of esoteric ca- uh, good capture of the Christians while God fulfills his purposes on the earth. Like that, that narrative doesn't exist in the Bible. You have to actually read that in. It's by inference, because God said these other things, how is it going to happen? Well, it can only happen if this scenario happens. And so you go looking for a rapture. And if you go looking for anything in the Bible, you'll find it. But you have to let the Bible speak to you and not the other way around. So Matthew 24, taken is bad. First Thessalonians 4, take, um, caught up is not bad. It's just not rapture. Does that make sense? The other thing you'll find um, in dispensational premillennialism is they'll find the rapture in a revelation. And I've said this before, you won't find a rapture in the revelation. But what they'll say is, well, in chapters 1 to 3, you have all these references to the church, the church, the church, the church, the church. And then the phrase church is not used again from 4 all the way until you get to the very end of the book. So they're saying, see, the church is missing. And so again, by inference, they're making a, a syntactic, a word choice argument that the church has been raptured. But there's no actual description of any type of rapture being taken place. And again, it's by inference a need in order to fulfill a fundamentalist commitment to literal interpretation and a dispensational faithfulness to God's plan A of his promises to geoethnic Israel. Now, this was not a popular um, belief system until the Zionist movement of 1948. And when Israel became a geoethnic nation state, this exploded on the prophetic scene. Because like I said at the beginning of the podcast, People are preoccupied with when the end will occur and how will we know it's coming. And so there's so much popularity in and around prophetic Bible teaching. And everybody flocks to hear. Anybody who will teach on, the, on biblical prophecy can get an audience immediately because human beings are just preoccupied with when will the end come? How will it affect me? How's it going to play out? When can we tell? And throughout human history, the whole history of the church, there's been all of these theologians who have sought to attach meaning of their current um, their current political happenings to things they could find in the in the New Testament, particularly in Revelation. People thought the end of the world was happening during the French Revolution. They thought Napoleon was the Antichrist. People thought the rise of, of Islam was the Antichrist and the world was going to end in 793 AD. Like if you go through the church church history, everyone's always convinced that this is it and these are the reasons why and they're attaching world events to biblical prophecy. So this is happening all of the time. And so in something as notable as a nation that has not been a nation or had national boundaries since the throughout the whole Ottoman Empire suddenly is reestablished as a nation state, that 
that like made this dispensationalism explode because it's proof positive that now we're there. But the people who believe this initially were convinced that the, the, the return of Christ was going to happen within a generation of 1948. And so it was all 1983, 1988, 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, all through the early 90s, there were all of these sects of people who had sold their stuff, cashed out their pensions. They were all, they were all sitting on mountainsides waiting for Jesus to return, following preachers who had given all these specific dates. Do you remember this? I mean, you guys were, this was very popular. And it's because of the, they were convinced by geoethnic Israel, or the, the appeal of geoethnic Israel. Now, I just want to say this for a second. Um, because we'll get to this at the very end of the podcast, and maybe we're approaching that now. Uh, there, there are personal implications to your eschatology. And because of the, the reason is one of the features of Christianity is hope. Like we are purveyors of hope, and we ought to be the most hopeful people. But depending on where our hope is placed, it's going to radically um, form the way that we interact with people, the world, and our expectations, our political affiliations. So just consider this, this little quandary for one moment. Right now, there is a nation in the Middle East that's called Israel. Its boundaries are not the biblical boundaries, right? And its leader is not an Orthodox Jew. There is no temple. There is no sacrificial system. And there are no tribes known to humanity presently outside of the tribe of Judah, which is the reason we use the term Jew, right? We say Jew and not Israel, Israelite, because the 11 tribes are lost to history. And anyone who is a quote-unquote Jew is is only from the tribe of Judah at this point. So you have these geo-ethnic, so they have a connection to this land, and they have this common heritage, that there is no lineage, there's no genealogies that preserve these people, but they have no actual faith or commitment to the Old Testament. So their ethnicity is, is, is quasi-Jewish. Now, imagine for a moment in the conflict between the, outer, the, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Israel, geo-ethnic Israel, and they're fighting. We do know that there are Palestinian Christians. And so what does it mean for you as a Western American Christian dispensationalist who has a vested interest in the hope of a temple being built in Israel, sending money to political Israel, and that, was mo- that money being used to build missiles that kill Christians in the West Bank. Think about the, the political implications of that. So this is not small stuff. And we have to have a, we have to have a perception and an awareness of bigger things than w- what we are told over here and what's actually happening over there. So in my politics, the reason I would be supportive of, of Israel is because they are the only s- similarly democratic nation in the Middle East. They believe in the things that we believe in, and they're, they're like a beacon of freedom in a, in a region surrounded by tyranny and oppressive um, leaders, leadership, very volatile environment. And so from a political standpoint, they ought to be our ally just for the sake of world peace, right? But for me, both religiously, theologically, and also politically, there's nothing actually special or distinct about what we are describing when we use the word Israel. And there is almost zero connection between them and what we read in the Old Testament. Now, there is a connection still, and this is where it gets a little dicey. Because God's plan for Israel culminated in 
the perfect Israel, Jesus, the Son of God. Israel is my son, and Jesus becomes the perfect Israelite. And in Christ, Israel is made Israel. And so you get to Romans, which you just read. Not all, not all of Israel is Israel, Paul writes. Not all of those who are children of Abraham are belong to Abraham. Why? Because the children of Abraham are those by faith. And so he talks about being grafted in. And so it's through faith in Christ that we become part of Israel. And if you are naturally born but severed through unbelief, you will, how easily for you to be grafted in? If you are an unnatural branch, but through faith grafted into Christ, this is the source of your life. And so for me, and we'll talk about this in the hermeneutics episode, Christ is the hermeneutic. Christ is the fulfillment. And so if you go asking, how do we preserve the scriptures from, from higher criticism and people who are calling it mythology and untrue and propaganda? Well, we don't have to, we don't have to make it literal in order to defend it. We can ask it. We can, we can bow in reverence before God's word and say, what is, what is it saying to us? And when, it, when, there's, when there's prophecies that are centered on the nation of Israel, I'm looking for those to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus, and I'm looking for them to be completely fulfilled in the people of God, the, the new Israel who are joined with Jesus by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. And so if someone to me is a, is a geo, well, I should say an ethnic Jew, because it doesn't really matter where they're at on the planet, if they're an ethnic Jew, I love Ben Shapiro, for instance. I listen to Ben Shapiro, listen to uh, Dennis Prager. These are, these are like dyed-in-the-wool Orthodox Jews. They have the Torah. They have the law. They have the prophets. They have the witness. They have the story. They have the feasts. They have, they have access to everything that testifies to Jesus. And so like Paul, like it should be an easy sell to preach Jesus to Jews because they've been holding him their whole entire life. And yet there's a veil, and yet there's a blindness, and yet there's a rejection. And so there is, in, at least in my reading of the scripture, there is um, small insights into Paul's confidence that at some point God is going to do a thing to bring a great revival among Jews. And so the fact that there are still Jews on the planet ought to say something to us about the faithfulness of God. But it shouldn't become the factor by which we affirm an entire rendering or hermeneutic that postulates all of these things that are not present in the scripture and then you have to do backbends to try to like make fit together. And so that's kind of like where I've, I've landed personally. But I understand there's people who think differently than me and we can all get along. So it's not that big of a deal. Yes, John Wilson. Um, I wanted to ask you if you would address before this podcast is over. Uh, one of the main fears of a lot of Christians and me in mm-hmm. my life has been we're being in the end times you know yeah. we're dragged out in the streets and we're mm-hmm. our our families are killed and the daughters turn against the dad and mom mm-hmm. moms and dads and yep. blah 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 and i remember so many places in the bible where christians were impaled mm-hmm. for fun they were crucified they yep. were fed to lions and things yep. and i remember uh when you were talking about eschatology maybe eight eight to 12 months ago, you had mentioned something about Noah in that first judgment, Noah was spared. He was taken out of that and Mm -hmm. protected. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and also I don't know where it comes in where when the Lord returns or rapture or whatever they ever ever call it, Mm -hmm. airplane, Christian airplane pilots 
are gone mm -hmm. and families in their cars are gone and there's accidents and airplane crashes and all kinds of things. Help me with all that. Yep. So, uh, you know, I cut my teeth like everyone else did in America on dispensational premillennialism. So I watched A Thief in the Night. When yes. I was eight years old, was terrified. That's yes. one of the things uh, I was anytime thinking. Anytime I walked into my house and it was empty, I assumed I missed it. You know, I was plagued with insecurity. Um, like this is the outcome because ultimately, when it's a it's a the the whole rapture theology is actually built on fear, and it's actually an escapist theology. And the reason it's appealing to people in prosperity is because it makes us feel like we are going to not have to endure the great tribulation that's described in, for Christians in the Bible. But the, the problem with that is that 90% of the Christian world is experiencing that tribulation now. Like, they're not getting away from it. If you try, try to be a Christian in Nigeria, try to be a Christian in Saudi Arabia, try to be a Christian in Pakistan, in Iran, like, the, the call to discipleship is a call to self-denial. It's a call to death. It's a, it's a call to valuing Christ above everything, your own family, your own life. And that's, been, that's clear for us as we read it. But there's an appeal to those of us who are outside of that realm of suffering that we would not have to endure it. And this is why there's so much debate over the whole inside of dispensational premillennialism. There's the whole pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And it's fueled by people's fearfulness of experiencing this great tribulation. But if you actually go back and you read the Olivet Discourse, understanding that Jesus is talking about a horrific human event that actually already took place, and then you read about that horrific event, it was the worst thing that J Jerusalem had ever seen. And Jerusalem had had a storied past. There had been lots of battles. There had been lots of bloodshed. There had been lots of treachery. But in AD 70, when Jerusalem was sieged, destroyed, the wall broken down, the temple destroyed. Remember, I talked a few weeks ago, too, about the vine, the, the gold vine worth $130 million. When it was burned down, all of that gold melted down, and all of it seeped into the mortar joints of the temple. And the reason there's not one brick standing on another is because people, after the the smoke cleared, went in there and broke apart every single one of those stones to pull that gold-laced mortar out of out of the temple and so jesus prophecy was fulfilled to the letter and so when you're reading those if you're reading them from a futurist perspective and you're expecting that to happen there, there's actually what you should expect and we'll if we wait, do we have time we have about yeah we have some time let me let me talk to you guys about well joy let me answer your question first I was wondering if you could speak about the mark of the beast. Yeah. And, you know, we see today where you, in the grocery store, mm -hmm. you know, we've already got codes and all yep. that kind of stuff. Yep. How does that relate to all this? Great question. So, again, let me just acknowledge that all of us have an impulse to connect our daily experience to the horrific prophecies of the Old Testament. This is prophesied. This looks like that. Is this that? And then that's also kind of buttressed by when will this happen and what will be the signs of these? This is the human condition. There's nothing wrong with this. This is where everyone's going to begin this conversation. And so that connection is, is made. Now, here's, here's, how I want, here's how I want to describe to you my understanding of um, Revelation. So in order for us to have categories for all of these different, the 666, the mark of the beast, the woman and the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, who are these, who are these people? Are these, are these actual figures? Um, and there's a lot, again, so much ink spilled on the meaning of Revelation. So 
let me just give you a little short monologue. Um, as you can already tell, I fall into the preterist camp, not the futurist camp. So when I read the Bible and I understand history, I see a very fluid Jesus-centered way of reading the whole Old Testament and the New Testament in which Christ really does fulfill everything God said in the Old Testament. And through our union with him, every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, is now experiencing the expression of all of God's many and great promises in Christ. And so that's my expectation as I read the New Testament. But there are still futuristic elements, which makes me a partial preterist and not a full preterist. And so instead of looking at Revelation chapter 4 and following as futuristic, I, was, I would read Revelation 20 and following as futuristic, or 21, 22. And so, yes, there, there's still, there's, there's, um, there are um, deposits made by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse that are not only about the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but that are also universal in application to Christians throughout all the generations. And as you study church history, you will find that people just like us throughout the ages have come to the same conclusions about Nero Caesar and about Justinian and about the Pope and about Muhammad. And so if you read church history, you will find people reading with a futurist angle and then tying what they're experiencing, the darkness of their world, and going, this looks exactly like this. Now we can't buy and sell. Now we're being put out and now we're suffering and there's going to be a great tribulation. And they hold on to the hope that Jesus could return any moment. And you're going to read that throughout church history. And it ought to be the same for us. And the reason I say that is because there's a paradigm through the apocalyptic genre of Revelation. Revelation doesn't give us details because Revelation is talking about universal, spiritual, hidden realities that are true in the world as the world exists today. And so in every generation, you will find both um, the, the enemy, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And what are these? Well, the dragon, that ancient serpent, he's the, the powers of darkness, the supernatural opposition to God, who's rearing his ugly head and seeking to oppress and destroy and kill. And there's going to be an alignment with that spirit of darkness with those human power structures in the earth. That's why we say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And what do we see even in our governments today? At the highest levels of power, there's only grabs for more and more and more and more power, right? And so this has always been the case. In fact, the foundation of our American government has been to oppose this universal human experience, to, to distribute power evenly and to create separations of power and to turn the whole power structure upside down for the freedom and the good and the prospering of the citizen versus the, the tyranny from the top down, right? And so the, the beast is, is that political alignment with darkness. And so you have good leaders but eventually those good leaders either die or are corrupted and power centralizes around those who have the most of it. And so those with the most money, with the most influence, they get a death grip and they start to abuse people and they align with the forces of darkness. And what always happens, and you're seeing this happen right now, is that you will find a religious voice that comes alongside to align itself religiously with the beast and the darkness that's hidden behind that beast. And so you will find religious voices, Jewish, Christian, whatever, who come alongside to say, actually, this is good. This thing that's happening is godly. 
And so you get, you get the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet in every age, in every generation, in every country, in every language, because these are universal realities about the way the world works in its brokenness and its darkness. And it oftentimes results in the suffering of God's people. And so the reality is that in the world, in this, this, this uh, dark triunity, this trinity of evil between the false prophet and the beast and the dragon, they are leveraging power through fear. And their power is their willingness to kill. But revelation is about the reality that our power is in our willingness to die. And so it's incumbent upon the Christian to recognize, I have a hope beyond life. This, this body, my money, my family, they are, tre- they are precious to me, but they mean nothing in comparison to the glory of Christ. And so I will live my life unto him and for him to the point of my own death. And that has been the most powerful Christian church in, in history. In fact, the church prospering becomes paralyzed all throughout history in every generation. You take a church and you give them wealth and prosperity, peace and freedom, and they, their, their mission dissolves, their prayer dissolves, their passion dissolves, and they become susceptible to escapist ideologies, and they're driven by fear, and they end up not fulfilling God's purpose. But the more you scrutinize and persecute the church, the church persecuted becomes powerful. The more we're pushed down threatened, stamped, that's when we stand up strong for what we believe in because the essence of our hope is not that we will be preserved out of suffering. The essence of our hope is that we will be carried. Noah Noah was a picture of divine salvation. You know this. Noah, and remember, who, who gave us the Noah story? It was Moses, right? It was Moses. It was oral tradition, but Moses gave us the, the story. And what was the story? That a family was preserved through the judgment of God, through obedience, because of God's revelation. Do you see that? And what happened to the Hebrews who were preserved, a family, by God, through judgment, a famine, because of divine revelation and obedience to do what God said? And what was the, met, the, what was the, um, the vessel by which God's chosen person, in this case Noah, was delivered and everyone who was a part of his family? An ark. And what was the name, the biblical name of the vessel by which Moses, God's deliverer, and his whole family were delivered? Not only that ark, yeah, yes, that that was the presence of God with his people, but the basket that Moses was placed into, Moses means drawn from the water, right? The original Hebrew, what is it? It's the same as, is a pitch-covered ark, just like Genesis chapter 6. Build an ark of gopher wood, cover it in bitumen, you know, that word pitch is closely related to the word for atonement. It means to cover. And so you get, you're getting these pictures of the salvation that we find in Christ. It's not a picture of, of physical preservation away from pain, suffering, danger, and death. It's a picture of we are going to be ultimately saved and preserved through the covering of the vessel that God will provide that we come into through obedience of faith and a result of God's revelation. And that's, for us, that ark is Christ. You know what I'm, you hear what I'm saying? Ultimately, Noah died, his, his wife died, his sons died, but God was faithful to his promise, his promise to Eve, his promise to Noah, his promise then to Abraham, his promise to Jacob, to the 12 tribes of Israel. And ultimately, he only made a promise to one tribe that they would have a king forever. And who was that? Judah. And so, and so here we are with a Judean king, namely Jesus, who has been victorious over death 
And he invites everyone with no coercive power and no threats to come and by faith to obey him through revelation and to come into his family. And for everyone who comes into his family, they are preserved through the judgment that is to come. And so our eschatology ought to be one of whatever comes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be preserved safely through the, on the other side. But it doesn't necessarily have to relate to our physical safety. Lots of all the early apostles died horrible deaths. Um, so many early Christians, read, read Justin Martyrs, um, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, all, all of these stories about people who are willing to uh, profess allegiance to Christ in, regardless of what it costs them. And that is the power of Christ. That's when it's put on display. Every revival that's ever happened has exploded when people were unwilling to, out of fear of self-preservation, buckle under the power of tyranny, but instead they were willing to stand up to the point of their own suffering and death. And this is where Christ becomes visible. And so this is the essence of our eschatology. Yeah, all the stories throughout the Bible and church history. Oh, something I want to say, John, is like, because uh, I was, my undergrad was in a, um, what's our, our word, the dispensationalist? Yeah. Um, premillennialism, premillennialism, pre-trib rapture, all this other stuff. And, um, that was the only way, just like you said, that was the only way, that was the only way it was available. And I was like, I was just looking at the context. I was like, I don't know if these things fit together, just trying to fit it that way. But one thing that I do notice in revelation is that every single time there's a plague, uh, a sign, a something God has protected his people or removed them from the plague, you know? And so like you might get caught up in the in the act of judgment, but there is a like divine protection on the other side for us. So it's like something, something to think about if you want to read revelation again and look for where God's like, Hey, I got you. I'm taking care of you. I've hidden you away over here. I've done these things like to, to, to prosper you and not to burden you with. Yeah. And you don't need a rapture for that to be true. Right. So this is true regardless. In fact, when you go back to the, to the uh, Hebrew story, when the plagues came on Egypt about the, was it the third plague? they stopped affecting the Israelites. So they were in the Goshen Valley and they didn't experience all the plagues that the Egyptians did all the way up into the death of the firstborn son. Israel is my son. And so if you won't give me my son, I'm going to take your son. So like these things, the, a protection of God's people, a treasuring of God's people and a preserving through judgment is a theme. But it, but the, the rapture concept is not a concept introduced to us by the scriptures preservation through judgment absolutely is 100%. And you do see those themes in in Revelation. So last thing I want to mention to you guys. Okay, you go ahead, Bill. I got one more. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and this it. is for, for Joy, is uh, we just translated the Shema in, uh, in my Hebrew class. So like, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. But in there, like, uh, would it, like going through it very slowly and seeing what, what it means is he says, like, bind my commandments and my limits on your hand. And then he also says, you know, there'll be a sign for you on your hand. And they're also going to be a sign where right between, it literally says between your eyes or, you know, your forehead. And where's, where's the mark, where's the mark of the beast located? Something to think about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What's your allegiance to? It's about, is God's word on your hand and on your forehead? Or is, are you, have you aligned yourself with the, 
with the powers that be. Do we need to be concerned about if they finance this thing? They say, yeah, we're going to put a chip. You can't buy anything unless you have that chip under your hand. Or so again, that's like a super literalist way of trying to make sense of the of the word. To okay, the, are you going to put a mark? Is it a tattoo? Is it a UPC? Is it a microchip? Like all the things people have been asking for the last thirty years and before that. I mean, even swastikas on foreheads in in Nazi Germany, and the the connection here, the impulse is to make a a figurative thing, a literal thing. So Bill's saying, hey, look, we got a literal, we got a literal thing happening in Revelation that's actually exactly the same as what was happening in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema. I remember that. I remember that. You put it in the frontlet of your eyes, put it on your hand. The doorposts, is that significant? Remember doorposts anywhere else? Like we're talking about what, where does your allegiance lie? This is what those hand and forehead mean. Again, if you're looking for what does this literary um, tool what is it trying to communicate to me, right? What is it saying? Even like man's number, and there's lots about 666 that people, preterists are famous for saying 666 is the Greek um, numero alpha, alphanumeric transliteration of Nero Caesar. But you can make 27 names. I think, I think Heathcliff and uh, Bart Simpson are also 666. So like you can make it say whatever you want. Um, the, the question again there, you're trying to take a thing, you're trying to turn it into a literal thing, when in fact these are all metaphorical um, word tools to communicate a deeper underlying meaning. Yeah. And I think, uh, for me, at least I think he's talking about like what you do and how you, what you think, right? Like, Cause where are these things that he's talking about? And then you think about what Jesus said, you'll know my disciples by their fruit, what comes out of their hands, mm-hmm. what originates in their mind. And so I think that he's, he's like, cause he says in there like a whole bunch of times in, in, um, revelation, like let the discerning, or the wise be discerning about what these things are. So it's, I don't think it's a physical barcode or something, but Mm -hmm. it's rather just like Jesse's saying the allegiance, what, where are you at in the mind? What are you actions? Are you doing with your hands? Are you representing Christ? Mm -hmm. Less, less question. I've got to say it. Yeah. If we love the Lord with all our hearts and are trying to follow him the best we can, we don't have to worry about being tortured to have take this mark of the beast or something like that and and or you won't be able to eat any ever again you won't be able to get medicine if you're sick as a dog or cancer or things yeah, like that. you might absolutely i okay. mean we saw that with uh with covid vaccines i mean like you lose your job you can't go to work um i mean anytime you have a beast anytime you have a coercive human power structure who is taking over through an ideology control over people and leveraging against them and you're unwilling to bend to that absolutely let yes you could but god also is faithful and so when we take our stand guess who stands up for us and this is this is the this is actually the theme of revelation it's actually about conquering it's actually about enduring it's actually about loving not your life unto death and so this is where the power comes from and so like revelation 13 the beast and the dragon are showing up and the, the scripture says hey to some it's appointed to go to prison to others it's appointed to die but let it, let it be, Lord, whatever your will is. And this is where the testimony and the power of the church comes into play. So I can't promise you you'll never suffer. What I can promise you is that you will always find God's acceptance. And you think about Stephen, right? We're just talking about Acts chapter 5 in the office. Remember we get to Stephen. Um, I, 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 want to, I want to monologue right here. I never realized this before, right? I listened. I read Stephen's. Um, I always, when I read Stephen's monologue in Acts, I thought, 
why is he telling the long story again? Everybody knows this story. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, he's retelling the story. I've read this story now 40 times I know this story, but I never realized that he's telling the story. And when he's telling the story, he's actually implicating the Jews. He's saying, you know what? God always sent someone to speak. And the, and the stiff-necked, unbelieving people killed them. And God always kept making promises. And God always revealed. And God always chose the unlikely people to receive his blessing by faith. And for those who did receive it and believe it, God accepts them. But for those who didn't, God rejects them. And the Jews got up to stone Stephen because they realized he was implicating them as the bad guys in the story. Do you realize that? And so this is the same story for us. But what did Stephen see when he's being pummeled to death by rocks? The heavens opened up. And what does he respond? What are the words? The words, he mimics Jesus' words on the cross. Father, forgive them, and into your hands I commit my spirit. And so like ours is the cruciform life, and that's beautiful. I mean, the early church considered it glory to die for Christ. I mean, just glory. There's reports in, in Fox's Book of the Martyrs of these women who refused to denounce Christ. All they had to say was, I, I renounce my allegiance to Christ, and they wouldn't. And they were weeping joyful as they were burned alive. And you, the only way to describe that is, I am being preserved through the most excruciating pain, through a spiritual joy that cannot be thwarted. Because I'm a, that's, the, that's the hope that I'm passionate for people to have. Hope for a rapture to me is so subpar. Is what? I'm sorry. Subpar. 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 Yeah, but hope to die well and to experience God's preservation in the midst of your own execution, like, wow, wouldn't that be powerful? Wouldn't that be powerful? Wouldn't it be an amazing honor to, be, to, to give your life for the Lord? And that all of the early disciples felt that way. In fact, Peter, history tells us when he was, they, he was told he was going to be crucified if he didn't denounce Christ, and he said, just don't crucify me right side up because I don't deserve it. And so he was crucified upside down. Because he, he, he didn't, he said, that's too much honor for me. Turn me over. Just think about this. And so like, this is the, this is the, the earth shattering hope of the, of the Christian and, and the, the, the son of God, Israel centered, Jesus fulfilled, um, durability and, and, um, just vast understanding of eternity and all that God is doing. And it just makes our suffering seem so small and such a beautiful thing we can offer to the Lord. And so to me, an eschatology that has that effect is so much more powerful than one that kind of appeals to our innate desire not to suffer. And so I find that uh, dispensational premillennialism was built upon a reaction to something bad. And in fact, postmillennial and traditional amillennialism also are. They're, they're kind of anti-Catholic Protestant readings of the Old Testament. And so, like, I don't fall cleanly into any of those four. And I get some of the justifiable reasons why people fall into one or the other, not just because it's all they've ever heard, but even if you st study it, they, different ones of them have different strengths and weaknesses. And so I, anybody that does their work, I'm like, I, I applaud you for, for trying to be rigorous and come to your own conclusions. But I have just found that a Jesus-centered hermeneutic interpretive method will bring you to a partial preterist, realized millennial, non-rapture, fulfillment in Christ durable, hope-filled Christian experience that knows that when I look out into the world, here's what I expect to see. The devil at work bringing darkness, po human power structures colluding with that devil and trying to grab more and more power every time, and a false prophet religious entity that is aligning itself and saying that there's a good quote unquote moral version of this and you ought to align yourself with it. And so when I see that, I go, yep, there it is. And yes, you will see it in our day. And who knows if it'll be microchips or UPCs or who knows, it, but it'll be something. It'll, you'll, it'll be something. 
So last thing, last thing I'll say right here, um, the book of revelation, again, when we go back to, um, both historic premillennialism and, um, dispensational premillennialism, which are both futurist eschatologies, they're going to stop reading the past at revelation three, when the letters to the churches are done. And from revelation four and following, they're going to see everything as being future near future, far future. And so every teacher you hear that is teaching from four and on as future, that is a futurist eschatology. So as a partial preterist eschatology, I'm looking to Revelation and I'm saying, what are you trying to tell me? And if you read it without trying to place it in time by answering the question, when will this happen and what will be the signs, and you let the book speak for itself, something really beautiful emerges. In fact, what you'll find is that Revelation is built upon seven cycles of Revelation that interconnect and actually retell the same story seven distinct times. And only one of those times, the seventh, is actually futuristic. And so you get more and more and more and more of the picture. Have you guys ever seen the film Vantage Point? It's a picture, it's a film, it's a, I don't know, 20 years old now, but it portrays the assassination of a political figure while giving a speech. And it plays, I don't know, seven, eight, 12 minutes of seeing this whole event take place from the perspective of one of the characters. And then it starts over again and you see the exact same thing take place, but now you're seeing it from somebody else's angle. And that happens four consecutive times until the aha moment at the end of the film, you go, oh, I was totally duped because from this angle, I couldn't see everything that was happening. And now I know who's the double agent and when this got set up and how all this happened. But you would never watch that movie and think, man, that poor guy got shot four times, no. right? But this is how we read Revelation. And so when you read Revelation, and we don't think this way when someone's telling us it's linear and literal, but like, for instance, when there's this great battle of Armageddon, where's everybody? You go back three chapters, everybody's dead. There's a sea of blood. The birds are eating all the carcasses. There's, there's no humans left when you get to the battle of Armageddon, if you're reading it linearly. But if you read it like Vantage Point is as a film, you're actually seeing the same cycle of events from four different descriptions. And it's actually seven in Revelation. And so this is what's called the idealist rendering of the book of Revelation. And I can send you guys or post, probably even with the podcast, this um, very easy to read PDF. The only thing I don't like about this PDF is that in the right-hand column, the return of Christ is in each one of these seven cycles, but it's, it's inverted upside down. So maybe we'll fix that if we possibly can. But cycle one is the seven letters to the churches. Notice the seven. Cycle two begins in chapter four and goes to chapter seven, and it's the seven seals. At the seventh seal, you go into cycle three, which is seven trumpets, Revelation 8 to 11. You get to chapter 12, and you get seven histories. You get the dragon, the woman, the beast, the false prophet, the faithful, or the 144,000, the angelic proclamations, and then the Son of Man returns. And so you get seven histories. Chapters 15 and 16, you get seven bowls. Disease, destruction, curses, calamity, blood, Armageddon, Judgment Day. Again, you're telling the whole story again with new elements, new fullness, another angle. When you get past the bowls, you get cycle six, which is seven messages to Babylon. So from, from heaven's messages, the kings of the earth, the merchants, the seamen, the fall of Babylon, which Babylon is the city that kills the prophets. And so what is the city that kills the prophets? It's Jerusalem. So we try to turn Babylon into America or Rome or the European Union. Babylon's is this is a stick in the eye to the unbelieving Israelites. Babylon in Revelation is Jerusalem. 
And so you get to the cycle seven, which is the futuristic one. This is this is chapter twenty and twenty-two. You get the binding of Satan, uh, binding of Satan, the final judgment, promises for the saints, and then the consummation fulfilled. And this is where, um, and and nineteen ends with the the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yep. Something I want to touch on that I don't think we touched on yet is something that's been really humbling for me is to consider that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. There is no modern day apocalyptic literature. So imagine you were coming in to read Revelation like you were reading a birthday card from earlier, but instead you're reading a legal document and you read it with the mindset of a birthday card, right? You're going to be in trouble. So like, it's important to consider the genre, like the genre is something that we're not familiar with. And so that always makes me say, maybe I don't understand this. Maybe I need to like take a step back and, you know, and I'll allow scripture to reveal more of what, what God intended us to understand from revelation. And there's nothing that I wouldn't be like, I'm going to build my whole theology on this one verse in revelation from an apocalyptic literature piece that I don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Yep. Gog and, made Magog. Gog and Magog, yeah. So if if you read Gog and Magog in Daniel, and, and again, uh, Revelation is built upon the Old Testament. So uh, this is my thing for people who say, like, I can't bother reading the Old Testament. You don't, you won't know what the New Testament even is saying if you don't know the Old Testament. In fact, just saturating yourself and understanding the Old Testament will unlock the New Testament for you in such powerful ways. So Gog and Magog are these descriptions of a king and a nation that are fueled by, by straight evil. It's an alignment with evil and humanity. This is what's going back to the Nephilim. This is the men of renown. Why were the, why were the Nephilim on the earth in those days before the flood and then on the earth in those days after the flood? Where did they come from? Why did they, how did they come back if everything was destroyed? You ever ask that question? Well, the reason is, is because these are supermen. These are, this is evil, straight infused evil into humanity. They're bred. This is eugenics. They're breeding people for power. And so there's this evil impulse to take the biggest and the strongest and then to exploit through sexual immorality to bring about a race of super, super villains to destroy the earth. And so they're building an army through evil forces. And this is why they pop up on either side of the flood. This is all the way through the Old Testament. And Gog is this mega king. He's seven and a half feet tall and, you know, full of deformity and can't see because he's all inbred and, and scary. And his, his, his nation is Magog. And so that it's a picture, if you're reading Daniel, of like the forces of evil. It's the beast and the dragon. And so this is what you're standing up against when you get to Revelation. But you won't know this. Someone says, Gog and Magog, that's Russia and China. Well, no. <laughs> like, there's no Russia and there's no China in the Bible. Like, we're all in there. There's definitely no America. Like, everything that we we are, and we need a filter to see the world as it actually is, um, is, you know, of late development. I don't know how long our American experiment is going to last. What I know is that its beauty and its success is where it's founded upon revelation and truth. Things like human dignity, the rights of life, uh, rights that come from God, the striving towards equality of opportunity, justice, and having a legal system, the separation of powers. All of these things are beautiful things that flow right out of the Christian gospel, right? But that doesn't necessarily make America a Christian nation, but it definitely gets the enemy's att attention, and he's seeking to exploit that by what? Grabbing a hold of everybody who's in power and corrupting them to turn the thing over on its head? And... Finding a group of religious people who will come alongside them and say that that's good for everyone. Sound familiar? And so we're going to see it in generation after generation after generation. It'll be the same thing. And part of the reason why it's so we're so quick to go, Christ must be returning now, is because it's so obvious the connections between what we're reading in this, this apocalyptic genre and what's forecast 
and what we're actually experiencing. But every generation of Christians have felt that way. And every generation of Christians will feel that way because Revelation is this apocalyptic guidebook so that we have insight. I mean, Revelation, apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. It means unveiling. This is God saying, let me just tell you what's really going on here. And so it's cryptic in the sense that it's apocalyptic as a genre, but it's enlightening in the fact that it's lifting the veil off of what's actually happening in the world around us. And it ought to really inspire our intercession and prayer against the power of the enemy because God responds to our prayers. It really ought to give us a boldness in like a Mordecai kind of a way to stand up against the powers that be and to speak truth to power. It really ought to give us a willingness to not align ourselves with false religion and false prophets and to stand up and say, that is, that is straight untrue. That is, we are not on the same team as those people, even though they have the same symbols in their sanctuaries. Do you understand? And so like, this is where this uh, Jesus-centered eschatological hope ought to really promote action in opposition to the, the evil trinity of Revelation. So I find that apocalyptic literature itself uh, is very emblematic and metaphoric and not, if you read it, if you read it literally, it's just going to make you crazy. That, that doesn't, doesn't work, you know, but we, our minds are ready for this. You know, our, our world's fascinated by all the Marvel movies right now, all the superheroes and the planets and the multiple universes. And now we're traveling through time and you're overlapping all these different storylines and fitting them all together. And you'd think what, what humans can keep track of all of these events and all of these people and in what world could all of these stories come together and you're, but our minds can keep track of it. Why? Because we're, we're following the storyline and we're getting the imagery and we're understanding the themes that are going on here of, you know, the, the orphan spirit and using your power for good and laying down your lives for others. And there's all these sub themes that are seeping up through these Marvel superhero movies. I don't, I don't even watch any of them, but just the commercials are dizzying to me. I don't even know what number we're on, but the generation behind me is just eating the stuff up and connecting with it so powerfully. And, and apocalyptic's not really anything different than a first century version of that. But if you have someone telling you that in order to be faithful to the scriptures, you better read it literally whenever possible. And if you're not, then you're, you're, you're not being faithful to God's word. Well, that, I don't want to be unfaithful to God's word. I'm not trying to be, you know, like symbolizing stuff and analogizing stuff and turning God's word into a myth. But this is the kind of uh, fundamentalist impulse that's all behind a lot of the dispensational um, premillennialism. So we've talked about a lot. I'm sure your minds are saturated. But uh, hopefully the kind of the message has come through. What I'd like to do next time, and you guys are welcome to join if you'd like again, is to talk about hermeneutics. And so you actually need a consistent method by which you're going to read the Bible and you need to apply that. So one of the things we didn't talk about in this podcast was the dating of the books and so if, if these books, one of the things that comes, there's hot debates over the age of Revelation, for instance, and all of the New Testament letters, because anything that was written after AD 70 is written in light of events that already took place versus if they were written before AD 70 and they're speaking prophetically about a future event, well, it'd be a future event that was actually prophetically fulfilled. And so a lot of the debate centers upon when was this book, book written. And so part of hermeneutical method is authorial intent and occasion, when was this written, written and to whom, and what, and what setting, so that you can extract its true meaning, because it will mean different things to you on different sides of human events. Does that make sense? So there's seven parts of a faithful hermeneutic, and we'll cover those in the next episode. So, um, and, and if you have a chance, if you go back to last fall's Hot Topic sermon series, the first one that I did was not to answer a question, but was to talk about the seven components of a Jesus-centered worldview, where there's a lot of overlap with that as well. 
And so one of those key components is expectation. The sixth of those is expectation and then consummation. So in summation, eschatology is centered upon the imminent return of Christ. There's one return of Christ. In different, different ones of these constructs, you're going to get multiple returns of Christ. In fact, the, pre, the dispensational premillennialist would say the rapture is a return of Christ. And then, so he gets his people, and then he comes back for a great battle. And so there's these multiple ins and outs. But there really is one return of Christ. When he comes, he will come back, not to deal with sin, but as a savior and as a judge, to sort out the difference between the faithful and the unfaithful. And the result will be final, some to some resurrection unto life and others resurrection unto death. And so like that is what we live in expectation of is his final consummation. Our hope is the fact that we are in God's saving vessel through faith and a part of God's family who is preserved. And this hope gives us all of the motivation that we need both to share this good news and invite other people into God's saving vessel, namely Jesus through faith, and then to become a part of God's family through the waters of baptism, union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. This is where our hope comes from. And so this is what matters the most. And in so much as your eschatology leads you to that hope and to that expectation, uh, you're right on. And there is room for variety because Obviously, if I was debating someone who knew as much about these topics as I do and was convinced otherwise, it would be a much different podcast, as you can imagine. Uh, and I'm sure I'll get some emails. Send your emails, jesse at joinwithjesus.org. Because <laughs> um, I'm happy to debate, debate it further. But there's plenty of people who have a faithful reading of God's word and love the Lord and just disagree with me, for either a futurist or preterist or dispensational, covenantal, whatever. And we can have those conversations. But ultimately, we want to fix our hope on the imminent return of Christ. And our hope is really in the fact that no matter whether we live to see his physical return, that when he returns and when the voice, his voice comes out like a trumpet, that we will rise and that we will rise not unto eternal death, but unto eternal life. And that's the substance of our hope. Amen. That's the way I want to believe anyway. Good. That's it. I mean, that's it. That's the essence right there. So fit, you can listen to that, um, that sermon from the Hot Topic series if you want more information on that worldview, and then we'll carry that into the hermeneutic question. You guys have any more um, thoughts before we close? Lion and the lamb. Mm-hmm. Lions sleeping with the lamb, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so you're getting into uh, the Isaiah, the Isaiah prophecies about the future peace. So this would be connected in many people's thought to the millennial reign. And so again, if it's literal, then you're looking for a period of time when Sinful people live a hundred years where you appear to have both faithful and unfaithful natural born people who do not have faith in a world that is characterized with a natural long life and a, a lifting of the curse, but no finality. And so it's a very unusual picture of a world that we do not know, right? So if it's literal, then you're having to figure out how do we get this to happen? And so it only happens in a millennial kingdom where you have a return to Christ and that makes you a post-millennialist. Right, But if it's not literal, then Isaiah could be using figurative speech to tell you that an age is coming when there will be peace among chaos, when there will be resolution and reconciliation, when God will do a thing in the world that actually changes people's hearts, changes minds, changes civilizations, changes... And if you look back to our world before Christ, it was rather brutish. It was violent, unsafe. I mean, how many of you guys had someone in your household keep watch last night so the rest of you could sleep? And yet throughout all of human history, that has been the need is to have someone keeping watch, even at the time of Christ. And so here we are living in a world post-Christ that is characterized in, in, in as much as people are aligned with the 
the belief in Christ and the the virtues that he espouses, what do we experience? Peace, prosperity, um, joy, family, less, yeah, less death. You got people risking their lives. I mean, we're living in a world that's actually metaphorically not too dissimilar from uh, people, I mean, even longevity. Think about we now. It's not unusual. John, how, how old are you? When's your next birthday? Eighty-nine. I'll be eighty-nine. My next eighty-nine one. Yeah. on your next yeah, one, right? Yeah. You go back a hundred, even one hundred and fifty years ago. The average lifespan of a male on the continent of North America was forty-eight. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I mean, like, I would be an old guy. And my dad lived yeah. to ninety-seven. Yeah. So here we are. We are because of things like what modern medicine, access to clean food and water, uh, taking care of our planet, like we're capable of enjoying a lot of God's good gifts in as much as we're aligning ourselves by faith with his purposes. And so like, I would expect more and more of that. So that makes me a little bit in the post-millennial camp because the more the gospel changes the world around us, the more our world comes to reflect what will ultimately be the new Jerusalem that God brings down from heaven. Because that's what our earth was made for. That's what we were made for. We were made to be God's people and to have, you know, health and wholeness and prosperity and to live lives meaningful and build societies and expand our borders and cultivate our planet. And, and so like, that's what I expect in the age to come. And uh, we just want to bring as much of that to the earth as we have now. So that's, that's where I would fall on the, on the Isaiah um, passages. Good question. Good stuff. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Thank you. This yeah. was really, really good. Yeah. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.